0: Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to mobilize to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit AllSaintsOKC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So let's open to Acts chapter 12. And just a bit about what we do. We love the word of God, right? There's three things that we do on Sundays and we worship. We worship in song and we worship in sacrament. So we have the Lord's Supper and we may be even doing that more often and we continue to worship through our time in the word of God. And then we also have the works of Jesus, something that the vineyard has been doing for 45 years. Those three things, worship, the word, and the works of Jesus. And so we really prize the opportunity to even open this book. Think about brothers and sisters in some Muslim countries, some Asian countries. You can't even own a Bible. And yet look around. We have pew Bibles, we have Bibles all over the place. And so I want us to think about what an absolute privilege it is to open the Word of God. And you can do it each day. And so what we do together on a Sunday is kind of a model. Um, I very simply read the scriptures and make some comments and walk us through. And we worship through that time. In the scriptures, as Chris was saying, really the point of opening the Bible is not a relationship with a book, it's a relationship with a person. And so when we open the Bible, it brings us into contact with a living person, Jesus. And John 1 says he is the word. So it's kind of a different approach here. We, It's actually the approach in the Bible, Jesus says in John 5 that the scriptures bring us into contact with him. So I want us to think about that each, each Sunday. When we open the Bible, we're continuing worship and we actually believe that the Lord Jesus is there as we're talking about him. Isn't that interesting? So it frames it in a very different way. And then after our time in the scriptures, we believe because he is present with us that he wants to heal And he wants to touch people and continue through the whole hour and a half that we have together. And then he's with you during the week. And you get the opportunity to spend more time with him each day. Whether that's in the morning or at a lunch break or in the evening. So we just absolutely love and treasure and prize the word of God. And we want to store it in our hearts and then have the Lord help us live it. Amen. People of the book. For sure. Now, this passage, chapter 12, is about the true king. So, we're going to see lingering behind the text here is the Lord Jesus, the king. And he's at the Father's right hand, who is also the king and creator. And we're going to see in this passage kind of a contrast between the true king and a tyrant king named Herod. And I'm not going to read the whole passage all at once, I'm going to read it in pieces. So, we're going to read Verses 1 to 5 first, and then I'm going to make some comments on it. But I want us to just have that in our minds as we read this whole thing. There is a true king, a true lord, and then there is this twisted tyrant king. And what we're going to see over and over again is the destructive power of Herod, the tyrant king. And then we're going to see the saving power of God. It's a rather remarkable passage so Lord we do we ask as we open the scriptures like you say Jesus in John 5 that the scriptures would bring us into contact with you that you would be here with us that you would teach us through the Holy Spirit and cause our hearts to burn with love and truth we pray in your name Amen. So what we're going to see here in this contrast between the true king and between the tyrant King Herod, we're going to see three things. And the first is Herod's scheme. I'm going to read 1 to 5 here and listen for Herod's plot or Herod's scheme. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. And he had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God, amen? Um, And what's gonna happen in the rest of the passage here, this is Herod's plot, but then we're gonna see in verses six through 19 that Herod's defeated. And what ends up happening is the Lord releases Peter from prison yet again. It's like he can't stay out of prison, right? They tell him to shut up, quit preaching the gospel, and he only does it more. And so he ends up released from prison. We'll see that in a minute. And then we'll see in the third section there, Herod's death. There's judgment against him. But let's look at this. At verse 1, it speaks of King Herod Agrippa. And let me just tell you, this guy comes from a family line of gnarly leaders, evil leaders. And they have this history going all the way back to King Herod the Great. And he was born 72 years before Jesus. And he had at least seven sons. We know of seven sons And so this guy that we're encountering here, about 40, the years about 44 AD, that's when this is happening, this guy is the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, do you remember Herod the Great? If you think about the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2, Herod is the one who killed all the male infants when he heard that Christ the Messiah, the king, was being born. So this is this guy's grandfather. And then he also had an uncle named Herod Antipas. So they're all named Herod, right? With different surnames at the end of that. But it's kind of like Caesar. You would have Caesar Augustus and you would have various Caesars. It's the same thing with these leaders. His uncle, Herod Antipas, is the one who beheaded John the Baptist and tried Jesus in a mock trial with Pontius Pilate. So how is that for a family background for this Herod Agrippa the I? And this guy is part of a Herodian line of Christ-opposing leaders. So that kind of sets the stage just in one verse there of who we're encountering. This dude was evil. We're going to see that he had a God complex. He actually thought that he was God in the flesh and he listened to people around him who told him that, look at verse two, this Herod Agrippa I. He had James, the brother of John, killed with a sword. And we got to hear that this has been going on for 2,000 years. Even to this day, there are leaders who apprehend and imprison Christians and cut their heads off. I've got a slide up here as an artist's rendition. Of this, and this is from the Middle Ages, so they kind of project some medieval culture there. But I just want us to think about it. We get to see it on the written page, but I want us to, to think about what brothers and sisters went through from the beginning. And we mentioned early on that some of the early church fathers had a saying that the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs, or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the of the church. And so these people put their lives on the line from the beginning. And so this is recorded for us as an inspiration to not back down no matter what. And I've said before that this is part of normal Christianity, right? We're reading the book and seeing that the Christians suffered from early on. And so we want to brace ourselves for anything and everything that might come our way so it doesn't seem abnormal If one day we have to face serious persecution or prison or even torture or death, we can say, you know what? This has been part of the Christian story for 2,000 years. And we're grateful that we get to live in America where it's an exception. All over the world right now, people are putting their lives on the line. And that changes the way that we do Christianity. Would you agree? Young people, would you agree that we, we don't just come to church on Sunday, but we are serious, we are committed, we are all in, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus has all of us. He has our money, he has our time, and we have the opportunity to have our roots go down deep into him now, facing the future that we've got. Amen? And again, that's not meant to be alarming or fear-inducing, but sobering. This is part of our story. So this Herod, King Herod, had James beheaded and he saw, look at verse three, he saw that this was pleasing to the Jewish people and he used his political power in order to garner more favor and to have people follow him. And it's we'll see another James later in the text. This is James, the brother of John, who's beheaded here. Now, if you think about this, Oftentimes, as we read Acts, we know it's connected to the Gospel of Luke. It's part two of that. But if you remember back, for those of you who've read the Gospel of Mark, do you remember there were two guys that came to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, and they requested to have the best seats in the kingdom? Do you remember that? you remember who those two guys were? Anyone? James and John. So we should be remembering the request of James. Now, that's what we love about the Bible, right? It is an incredibly human book full of human beings in all their glory, right? Can you imagine you've got Jesus, the son of God, God in the flesh, and these two guys are probably bickering with the other disciples, and they come to Jesus and they say, hey, can we have the two best seats, In the kingdom, when all of this is over and you establish the kingdom, it's gonna happen real soon, you're gonna overthrow Rome. Can we be sitting right there with you? And can you imagine Jesus going, What have I gotten myself into? I've got 12 guys and they're all like this in different ways. And so here we get to see Jesus had told them in Mark 12, He goes, I'm not sure that you know what you're asking for. And there were actually parents even requesting for their disciples' sons to have the same thing happen. And he, he told them back then, are you willing, James and John, to drink the cup and to share in my baptism? And they seemed to respond affirmatively, but I don't think they really knew what they were asking for. This is James getting to walk out and fulfill what he had requested from Jesus. He does, in fact, get to have a place of honor as one of the first disciples of Jesus, and he's the first apostle to be martyred. So Jesus granted his request. Totally different mindset, isn't it, than what we have? It is an honor, according to the word of God, to give our lives for Jesus. Now, we saw the first martyrdom in the church, and who was that in Acts 8? You remember? Stephen. So he's the first non apostle that's martyred, and he's forever known now as the first Christian in Christian history to give his life. Well, this is the first disciple, the original apostle who was able to give his life. Look at verses three through five. Peter ends up detained. And this one commentator says it wasn't shocking to the audience that James was actually martyred, but it shook the early church. They weren't surprised, but they were probably deeply shaken by this. And at verse 3, after Herod, this tyrannical king, sees that what he had done pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter also. So what do you think he had planned for Peter? The same thing. And so because they were in the middle, look there at the end of verse 3, they were in the middle of the festival of unleavened bread, he had to wait because it wasn't legal during that time to put him to death. So he seized him, look at verse 4, he puts him in prison and he handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, and look at this verb right here, to bring him out. To bring him out means he's going to bring him out and have a mock trial just as it happened with Christ and he's going to put him to death so that he's currying more favor with the people. And look at this. This could slip right past us, but how many squads of soldiers here? Four squads. So in each squad, there are four soldiers for each watch of the night. So at all times, Peter... And he's taken into a dark prison, we're going to learn later on, I think in chapter 16, there's more description of this. But he's taken into the inner place of the prison, and he's guarded by 16 soldiers, four units, four each. And he is shackled to two of them through the night. Why do you think that is? Does anyone remember back earlier in the book of Acts who was sprung out of jail earlier? Peter, this dude is greasy. I mean, he is like that greasy watermelon. You remember that game? Some of you probably did that. I did it in youth group. They took a watermelon, covered it in grease. You jump in the pool and you try to grab it. And the watermelon is like, whoop, whoop, whoop. That's a good one, Harrison. You can do greasy watermelon for the youth group. Well, he's like that. They keep trying to apprehend him and he just is slipping right out over and over again. So you know Herod knows the story of that. And so he's like, I'm doubling down on this guy. He is not going to get out. And so I've got 16 people guarding him. I've got him in the inner lockdown and I've got him double shackled. And look what happens. Look at the end of verse five. While Peter was kept in prison yet again, It had happened with him and John earlier. Look at what the church did. What did they do? The church prayed fervently to God for him. And we've seen in every chapter so far, we're 12 chapters in, prayer is that thread that runs through the whole book of Acts. From the beginning to the end of the book, God is showing us that the church is meant to be a people of prayer. And when they are in their most desperate places, the church then and the church now is called to pray. And I feel like we're tasting this a little bit as a church. But how much more room for growth do you think we have to really become a people of prayer? Does anyone want that? Oh, I certainly do. I feel like sometimes I've kind of moved maybe into third grade in prayer. Maybe fourth grade if it's a good month. And then all of a sudden I'm back in kindergarten. And I'm like, Lord, I don't. Would you teach me how to pray? I want to pray the Bible. I want to be addicted to prayer. I want to have a holy addiction to praying, to praying your word. But I just feel like it's kind of up and down. Anybody else identify? Am I the only one? Let's grow. Let's lean in so that we are a place and a people of prayer like the early church. Praying fervently when, frankly, you have nowhere else to turn except God. A second thing we see here, and I've already summarized it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to dip into it a little bit. But verses 6 through 19 talk about the defeat of Herod. Herod is defeated. Peter's delivered from prison. And let's just read the opening part here because it's rather comical. You'll see that Luke is not only a great historian, but he's a comedian. There's some great divine comedy woven into this. Look at verse 6. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out to kill him, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers. While guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. The angel tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Look at verse 9. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane. Then suddenly the angel left him. So, friends, this is yet another miraculous deliverance from prison, and Peter obviously was not sweating it. He knows the next day that he will stand in a mock trial, kangaroo court, and that he will give his life, just like James has. And what's his response? All night, tossing, turning, sweating, wringing his hands. What's he doing? He's sleeping. Think of anyone else in the Gospels who slept in a really tumultuous moment. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus slept, went into the bottom of the boat. The boat seems to be falling apart. They're freaking out. Jesus is down there getting a catnap. Peter, the knucklehead that he's been in the Gospels at different times, and I say that because I'm a fellow knucklehead at times and Jesus puts up with us, but Peter has learned something. He's like, I am going to bed and I'm going to sleep because God's got this. It's, it's not just an element here that is without meaning at all. He is sleeping deeply. He's sleeping so deeply. What does the angel have to do? <laughs> that's right. Wallace went, has to tap him. And we're going to see. Remember that word tapped. Okay. So it's the same word that's going to show up later. But he tapped Peter because he had that melatonin flowing through his body. He's conked out. And he has to tap him and tell him to put his clothes on. And to walk out and the shackles fall off. It is another unbelievable, astounding, miraculous deliverance. And we saw that after he leads him out, that suddenly the angel disappears. I wanted us to look again. I've got another image here that someone has beautifully portrayed here. And you can see Peter there is sleeping and the angel appears in this inner part of the prison and if you could see on the the background there and with his right hand these shackles are falling off and this angel is poking him saying wake up Peter come with me come follow me out of the prison i think there's another one as well yeah you can see there the angel on the far right and then peter clothed in red there. You can see the shackle on his left hand and the guards that are asleep. Frankly, we don't know what happened to the guards. The text does not say, do they remain in a deep sleep? We, we don't know. We're not sure, but we know that God supernaturally sends an angel to release Peter again. And interestingly, Peter obeyed and followed the angel. He didn't know exactly what was going on and They get through all of the various security checkpoints and they come to the last one, the gate into the city. And it's interesting, the word here is actually automate. It automatically opens for him. and That's where we get the the word automatic. And so friends, this is where we have to, as modern, postmodern people, this is what the word of God says. The Bible says it. I believe it. It happened this way. It's not a myth. It's not a repeat story. God delivered this dude again from prison. It happened this way. I shared a few months ago when we were looking at John and Peter's deliverance from prison, I shared Brother Yun's story. Do you remember that? The Chinese man who is part of the church planting initiative in China. And he actually experienced something rather similar to this. So it's not just, again, some distant past that we look at, but the Lord continues on occasion when he decides to set people free from prison and did that for Brother Yoon in a maximum security prison in Asia where he had been arrested multiple times and placed under guard, and he walked right out. The main gate opened up for him, so as the Lord did it then, he continues to work miracles when he chooses to. Now, this week, as I was looking at this, something began to sink into my heart. And I began to see just something about the way God works. So we look at, really, verses 1 through 5. And how did it go for James? Not so well, right? He's facing the same future that Peter was facing, and he lost his head. He was beheaded, and so I ask, Lord, where are you in that? Because then in the next section, 6 through 19, another apostle is facing the same thing, and the Lord chooses to deliver him and save him. Anybody else thinking that as we look over the text? Or maybe you've read this story before. Now, Lord, how can that be? Then we're even going to see in the third part that the Lord disciplines and judges and removes King Herod. So you've got three kind of little sub-stories in this narrative here. One suffers and dies. One is delivered. And then one is judged. And so this text goes to work on us, just like it did for the original readers of this, and we're left wondering, why is it this way with God? Why is it that you allow deep suffering and death at times? Lord, why is that? And then at other times, you grant healing and salvation and deliverance. And if you're looking at me for the answer, I don't have it. Here is the answer, and that is pray and cling to Jesus, and you can work it out with him. I re- As I was working through this, it got personal, and it went from just history and the pages. And I, I remember a moment, and I shared... Um, probably six weeks ago, about our journey in the desert. And one thing that happened was Amanda being diagnosed with MS, with multiple sclerosis. And I remember being in the doctor's office, and this Dr. Lava, who was a fantastic doctor, and when he brought the news to us, and I will never, ever forget that moment, we're looking at a computer screen, and he is one of the best in the country at early diagnosis of MS. So praise God we got to to interact with him, but he looked at the screen, he looked at Amanda, looked at the screen, he looked at me, and he said, Amanda, you've got MS. And I mean, immediately, I was just, my head was swirling, I was mad, I was kind of mad at him, (laughs) I was mad at the whole situation, I was mad at God, immediately, and so I said, Dr. Lava, how, how often does this happen, that a mother and a daughter have this? Because I shared that Amanda's mother had it as well. How often is that? And he looked right at me, and he said, none of that matters. And I said, well, I want to know the data. I want to know the numbers and all this. And he goes, Brock, she has MS. And you've got to, from this moment on, move forward and just embrace that. That's the reality of it. And this doctor was rebuking me Because I had questions and I had anger and I wanted to see explanation. And I sensed the Lord even just speaking through him and correcting me and saying, this is what it is. And so you have to embrace it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't hope for healing. And then the doctor went on to say that her life, she could live symptom-free because of the drugs And thankfully, that's how it's been for the most part. But in that moment, I was just filled with questions and anger, and it didn't go away. But friends, I think there are certain things, certain moments, certain times where the only thing we can do is get on our knees before God and say, this is how it is. This is what it is. And my complaining or my desire for more information, God show me the data as if that's going to help. We have to get on our knees before God and submit to God's wisdom and God's ways. And that doesn't mean that we don't pray for healing. That's not what I'm saying at all. Well, this is just our lot and we pray for healing. We use the medication, but in this moment, I had to embrace. Amanda had to embrace. That was the news that we had. Do you feel me on that? I just There are certain moments that you are having and that you will have. And the only way forward is to open your Bible and to pray and to cling to Jesus and to trust him as the king and the Lord of your life. And you may not ever get an answer that satisfies you. And in that moment, I would challenge you to think, is it better to suffer with God or without God? Because we went on to grapple with this and we were angry and frustrated, but we came to that conclusion. We either get to do this with God and with the presence of the Lord Jesus, whether we're feeling it or aware of it or not and cling to him or we can do it without him. So friends, we will suffer. I didn't plan on going into all of that but sometimes reading the Bible gets personal. Doesn't it? And that's how I hope it is for you that it moves from just stories or familiarity with it and the Bible, the word of God goes to work on us. Hebrews 4 says that it's like a sword and it goes it cuts down to the depth of who we are and searches our hearts and God shows us his love and his mercy. But we end up prayerfully clinging to him. Amen. So very quickly here, Peter goes back to the prayer meeting. He's escaped. God's delivered him from prison. He goes back. This young lady named Rhoda comes to the door. Peter's knocking. Knocks at the door. This young servant girl comes to the door. She goes, oh, my goodness, it's Peter. She goes back to the prayer meeting and says, Peter is at the door. And they all laugh. And they're like, girl, you're out of your mind. Literally, that's what the word means. You're mad. You're out of your mind. You're beside yourself. Again, humor. Weren't they back at verse 5 praying fervently? Is that what the text said? They were praying earnestly and fervently. And here God answers their prayer. Peter shows up knocking and they don't believe it. This is the early church. It's awesome to think that you can pray earnestly and fervently and also be unexpectedly surprised by an answer to prayer. So the short of it they end up interacting with Peter and God delivered him and then verses 20 through 25, you know what we'll do that next time. Why don't we stand Herod ends up dying. I'll open with that next time as we look at Acts 13. And I would encourage you, we linger in a book of the Bible like this for several reasons. And one is so that the message really sinks in to us as a church. We don't just randomly pick a book and think, ah, kind of roulette. Let's go with Acts. We prayerfully think about it, and then we spend time in it, and then we want the Lord to work the book of Acts, into our hearts and into our guts as a church. So I would encourage you each week, spend time reading in Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts 13, 1 to 14, and I'll come back before we do that, and we'll look at Herod's death because the true king ends up winning over the tyrant king. Got the worship team up here. Why don't we have the ministry team come up as well? Lord, we thank you for your word And we do just as a church right now. We kneel before you. We bow our hearts before you. We say that you're the true king. And we joyfully and willfully submit ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you. And we say that we trust you and your goodness. We love you, Lord. Thank you that you love us so much. And we receive the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit today. Amen.